The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. It's Tuesday, October 21st, 2014 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Today's Game 1 of the World Series, my favorite moment of the World Series from Cuckoo's Nest. R.P. McMurphy wants to watch. I want to watch the World Series. That is my best Peter Laurie impersonation. Oh, I saw a stage play where Laurie played McMurphy. Not true, but remember, remember the fervor and Nurse Ratchet wouldn't let him do it. People want to watch the World Series. The ratings don't show this, but I have kids now and they want to watch the World Series. It's crazy because you know, they didn't have much interest in baseball, but the World Series is coming around and their interest heightens. I don't even play baseball at home. Not really. I mean, I play with them. I don't even show them baseball on TV too much because I cut the cord. But anyway, we talk about baseball. And I think that so many things about being a parent before I became a parent were held out as just all but impossible. And then when you're actually in it, Like, the actual things that they say these are going to be the hard things aren't the hard things. The hard things are just the everyday grind of it. But, for instance, here's one where uh, people would say, before I became a parent, so, you know, it was was at least eight, nine years ago. It was a little bit of a different time uh, because what I'm going to talk about is gay marriage, right, or just homosexuality. And people would say, well, what do I tell my kids about homosexuality? It was before I had kids. I didn't really think that much about the question. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good question. It had been 30 years since I'd been a kid. This is the easiest thing in the world to talk to kids about, right? Oh yeah, usually boys like to kiss girls, but there are some girls who like to kiss girls and some boys who like to kiss boys. That's easy. They get that. One of the few things that actually they tell you is tough about being a parent that winds up actually being tough about being a parent is that the baseball game does start too late. Like that is true. Now, if I move to LA, it wouldn't be true. But here on the East Coast, the baseball game starts too late. First pitch is 8.07. My young guy has to be in bed by then. My old guy will do whatever he can to stay up. So we'll maybe watch a half inning. But you know what? This isn't bad. This isn't a bad part of parenting because it allows me to be like a, a radio announcer in 1930 where I get the details over the teletype and I relay them and perhaps embellish them. So the next day, I'm weaving the tale. I'm also taking out all the boring parts. I'm eluding all the scratching and spitting, and he looks over to first, throws it to first, looks over to first, throws it to first. And I could build up these characters, you know, James Shields strides to the mound, big game James, they call him, with a thunderbolt coming out of his arm and a belly that betrayed no butterflies. My eight-year-old likes it when I talk like that. I'm not going to mention the spitting. I'm not going to mention the blown calls. It'll just be all drama when I relay the World Series to them the next day. I think that's why baseball got popular, because you couldn't actually watch the game. There's nothing harming the popularity of baseball more than the fact that you actually now have to watch the game. So at least now, while my kids are little, they won't have to watch the game. On the show today, cornball, things that used to be funny but aren't. And in the spiel, the panic that is overtaking America. Now, this is the real epidemic. But first, we go to a state that's west, but not that far west. North, but not that far north. They got a crazy Senate race. Yeah, and it really is crazy. To South Dakota we go.
Republicans are popular in South Dakota. The state hasn't voted for a Democrat for president since 1964, for governor since 1974. Maybe Republicans are too popular because two are running for senator. And guess what? That opens the door for the Democrat Rick Wyland. The guy with the actual Republican nomination is Mike Rounds, considered a shoo-in, pretty popular governor. What could go wrong? Well, Larry Pressler could go wrong. He's a former Republican U.S. senator and an interesting guy. We'll get into it with David Montgomery, the political reporter for the Argus Leader in South Dakota. Hello, David. Hey, Mike. So let's first talk about Mike Rounds. The campaign's been lackluster. What does that mean specifically? The number one thing is that uh, the ads have been generally panned. I mean, they haven't been embarrassing ads. Sometimes you have political ads that just backfire mm-hmm. and destroy a campaign. There haven't been any of that, but they've been very uninspiring. A couple testimonials, some uh, a couple direct-to-video shots, a couple quickly put-together rapid response ads that, in many cases, do more to reinforce things they're defending against than they do to put questions to rest. Well, doesn't that maybe speak to the fact that this guy thought he had a huge lead and is playing the equivalent of the political prevent defense, don't make any mistakes? Well, that was definitely going on. I mean, he he did the whole thing where he was accepting as few debates as he could get away with, Mm -hmm. uh, not engaging with his uh, opponents in the debates, generally trying to uh, avoid mentioning them at all. Uh, He was running advertising. He was contacting voters, but doing the basic stuff. Right. I've seen him in factories giving speeches with guys in hard hats nodding. A lot of that going on. (laughs) Yeah, but but not the the hard scrabble uh, rolling in the mud uh, type thing that uh, you got to do to win a a tight race, which suddenly he found himself in. Did the race tighten because the other candidates have been good or because there's a scandal or quasi-scandal attaching itself to him? Both. Mm -hmm. I, I think... Rick Wyland, the Democratic nominee, and Larry Pressler, the former Republican senator now running as an independent, have both run pretty good campaigns within their limitations. Pressler uh, has had very little money. Uh, he's raised less than $100,000 for his campaigns, mostly just given himself uh, money from his uh, retirement savings, basically. But he's run reasonably effective ads in which he sort of reminds voters about his long service for the state and puts up photos of Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton and plays clips from Walter Cronkite talking about him that uh, are doing pretty well with uh, older voters, especially in the state. He's also sort of appealing to this general disgust with Washington right now in the political process, which is a very fertile ground to play in, in this election year. Yes, so he's been raiding his own IRA, which in his case might stand for an independent former Republican account. And Wyland is singing this song on the campaign trail. I'm not campaigning in corporate jets. I'm eating voters and luncheonettes. I've been to 311 towns. Still looking for that guy named Rounds. Everywhere I can, man. Bring on the road. Okay, that's King of the Road. <laughs> Is that playing well with the voters? Wyland's been doing the singing thing for a while, but it didn't really seem to catch on much uh-huh. until pretty recently. As the race tightened, people started paying a lot more attention to the songs, and coincidentally, about that same time, Wyland was released some more stuff, including a, a parody of the song Wagon Wheel. Uh-huh. The sort of slow build has effectively created this image for him as a sort of gu- guitar-strumming populace, <laughs> which uh, some people can criticize. You can say maybe it's not the most senatorial thing, but... It's better to be criticized for playing your guitar than it is for a array of other things that a Democrat can be criticized for in South Dakota, being part of the same party as the president or 
positions in the Affordable Care Act or things like that. Right. And, you know, 2014, Weird Al Yankovic was on top of the charts as a parodist. Maybe now is the time for parodies. But I want to get to the scandal. It's a little bit complicated. Basically, there's a program. This is not underhanded cash under the table. It's a government-endorsed program, which says you could get a green card if you're a foreigner, if you invest half a million dollars in the U.S. This isn't just a South Dakota program. You know, over here where I live in New York, they built the basketball arena in Brooklyn using some of these EB-5 visas. So what's, what, what's the scandal aspect to this program? What makes South Dakota different from a lot of other states is that uh, in South Dakota, for a long time, the program was a state-run program while Mike Rounds was governor. And Mike Rounds championed EB-5. Uh, he saw it as, a, as a, an economic development tool, a way to get investment into the state, which would all be well and good. But there have been some some major question marks about how the program uh, unfolded. There are beef plant funded with EB-5 money in northern South Dakota, a $115 million project that went bankrupt. A lot of contractors found themselves out of their money. There were uh, both state and federal investigations. One of Rounds' cabinet secretaries, his aide in charge of economic development, mm-hmm. he was uh, under investigation for alleged uh, theft of a uh, government South Dakota state grant this uh, northern beef plant, uh, allegedly misdirected it into uh, his own pockets and died by suicide last October uh, as uh, this indictment had been prepared and uh, the grand jury was about to meet. Yeah. There's no, no smoking gun, but there have been enough questions effectively amplified by Democrats and pro-Democratic groups and TV commercials that it's raised questions in voters' minds uh, that people think there's something fishy about all this. And it's raised doubts about Mike Rounds and what would ordinarily be a pretty easy race for him. Right. So all that said, I think the dynamic in the race is extremely interesting. Because Larry Pressler, a couple interesting things about Larry Pressler. In Kentucky, the Democrat, the actual Democrat, Alison Lundergan Grimes, won't even say who sh- if she voted for President Obama. Here's Larry Pressler who said, yeah, I voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012. In very Republican South Dakota, he's saying this. Other interesting thing about Larry Pressler... I live in Manhattan. The guy lives about 20 blocks from me. I have literally seen him buying bagels in the morning, maybe not in the last year, but I've seen him. I know him. I've talked to him in the past. I used to work for NPR. He kind of hated NPR in theory, but also liked to listen to NPR. So I've always considered him an interesting guy. We'll ask you two questions. Is Larry Pressler appealing this kind of quirkiness, but also uh, intellectualism? Is that appealing to South Dakotans? And the other question is, can we have a situation like Kansas where the Democrat is eased out of the race and maybe Pressler runs against rounds and maybe then Pressler caucuses with the Democrats? So a bunch going on there. You take it. So the first question, it's hard to say exactly what about Pressler is appealing here. I mean, he's running a very unencumbered campaign. He doesn't really expect to win and has just been sort of letting it all hang loose, saying what he believes and not worrying about what the consequences will be. That can be attractive to some voters. I mean, a lot of times third-party candidates don't have that aura of credibility. They seem like jokes. But uh, Press was a former U.S. senator. He's done this. And uh, for voters who are disgusted with the two-party system, he he seems like a credible alternative, Mm -hmm. more so than than the usual libertarian or independent might. As for the possibility of a Kansas situation, I I don't think that's going to happen in South Dakota. It was a remote possibility a couple weeks ago. It's getting more remote by the day. Uh, First of all, the, the deadline in South Dakota has passed for candidates to withdraw from the ballot. So even if Larry Pressler and or Rick Wyland, the Democrat, were to withdraw, their names would still appear in the ballot. Second, 
both men have said they have no intention of withdrawing. Uh, they're going to stick it to the end, which, you know, obviously is a promise the politicians have broken before. Uh, they, they've said it pretty firmly, and uh, it would be, it'd be pretty tricky to arrange. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, you have the fact that the Pressler appears to be drawing from both sides. It's unclear exactly which side he's drawing from most, uh, but both sides are, are hitting him from the left and the right to try to draw their supporters back over to their party candidates without uh, harming his standing among the other side. David Montgomery is a political reporter for the Argus Leader in South Dakota. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for having me on. Everything's on demand these days. I mean, I know I'm going to tune into the World Series and the batter on the Giants is going to be saying to the pitcher on the Royals, okay, I like it a little slow and over the middle, kind of inside, big and bouncy. It's just all on demand. You know why? The World Series isn't the world of stamps. And when you come to stamps, you think about the post office. They have a lot of limited hours. Maybe they have long lines. Well, forget about that. You could get your stamps another way, a dot-com way. In fact, stamps.com is the way. Anything you could do at the post office, you could do at your desk with stamps.com buy and print official u.s postage for any letter or package using your own computer or printer and unlike the post office stamps.com never closes i did ask rhetorically i mean it's a dot com what dot com closes it turns out they're an electronic store in new york city owned by orthodox jews can't go to that dot com on a saturday okay cool you got me but stamps.com although i'm sure they're reverent people they should be the chosen people for your postage needs we at the gist are offering a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Here's what you do. You go to stamps.com, you click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That is our code to get that offer that I described, the gist, stamps.com. When the Jacksonville Jaguars mascot joked about Ebola or when Gilbert Gottfried joked about 9-11 or when a cunning Czech pantomimist poked fun at Archduke Ferdinand's driver in 1915, the refrain was predictable, too soon. But what about too late? Meaning not just bad timing or when George Costanza thought of the jerk store response like a day after he was insulted. But what about things that used to be funny, but we just don't find funny anymore? Did we grow out of them? Or is humor merely evanescent? Or maybe we're wrong. Maybe there really is funny. Maybe there is great humor value in a falling anvil that we are incorrect in the modern times to miss. There is a new book out. It is called American Cornball, A Laugh-O-Pedic Guide to the Formerly Funny. It is written by Christopher Miller, and I love this book. Hello, Christopher. Hello. So what is funny about soup, or was once funny about soup? It was funny because it was noisy. Um, <laughs> people made a lot, a lot of noise when they're eating it. It was poverty food, mm-hmm. and a lot of the foods that have entries in the Laughopedia, like beans and hash, are also People had to eat too much of them when they were poor, and familiarity breeds contempt, and that breeds humor. It was funny because you could find things in them, so there's the old jokes about flying in the soup. There's mm-hmm. also a song, Who Put the Overalls in Mrs. Murphy's Chowder. I believe Two Chains did a uh, remix of that recently. No kidding. Okay, so it's a, it's a, it's a timeless... <laughs> even even in, in days when chowder and overalls aren't that common, there was even a Max uh, Get Smart episode where a Max Smart hit a camera in the soup. And it's kind of an ambiguous substance. It's like neither 
solid and they're liquid. Right. It's, I always find it really unsatisfying. Like, I used to hate it as a kid when my mom makes it for dinner. It seemed like we were being punished. A great treasure trove of what was once funny is old comic strips, but also current comic strips, because there seems to be no good mechanism to get a comic strip out of the newspaper. So let's look at Andy Cap. Turns out wife beating was funny. It's one of those comic strips, Blondie is another, that are sort of living fossils. Yep. You know, there may not be that many people who really love those strips, but they would make a stink if they were canceled, so it's easier to keep them in. Domestic violence used to be big, and, and you'd even find cartoons in The New Yorker in the 1920s about, you know, the wife beating or husband beating. A lot of old comics, the joke was that the wife would be bigger than the husband. She'd sort of physically outweigh them. And if you think of Snuffy Smith and his wife, Louise, there are a lot of couples like that. So often it was the wife beating up the husband was funnier. You have a few entries like the milk toast or the egghead, just the weak man. That was a lot funnier than it is now. A lot of jokes about the battle of the sexes and sex roles were funnier back then. So there was a lot of humor about dishwashing husbands. I mean, there's nothing funnier than a a man in a fairly apron washing the dishes. And it was just because people had such a clear idea of uh, who should wash the dishes, jokes about women drivers. Um, In the 50s, jokes about career girls, just uh, something about a woman who wanted to pursue her own career instead of being a a housewife was funny. Right, and the dishwashing husband is sometimes depicted alongside the other thing that used to be funny, the ice delivery guy. Yeah, the ice man. There was a lot of humor about that. Maybe the closest thing we have nowadays is the UPS man that also seems to inspire kind of raunchy fantasies for some people, but icemen were big hunky guys. They had to because they were lugging these giant blocks of ice around all day. They had to come into the house and right into the kitchen because the ice was so hard to handle without tongs. So, you know, these, these guys coming in while the husband was gone, a lot of them were Italian, so there was kind of this fear of the the ethnic male. And if you remember, but in one of the Marx Brothers movies, Chico plays an ice man. Yes, and in fact... In Ella Cinders, a 1926 film adopted from the comic strip, Ella's boyfriend is an Iceman and college football star named Weightlifter, W-A-I-T-E. Funny! (laughs) That was just a way of indicating that this guy, I mean, the name obviously does too, but making him an Iceman, that would immediately suggest to people that you're old, muscular guy. There is an illustration of, it looks like three variations on the exact same comic, where a dishwashing husband is saying to this strapping ice man, the wife isn't here, just give me what she always gets. Were those three different comic strip writers thinking of the same hilarious joke? Those were three comic postcards, probably from like the 40s and 50s, though by then... The Iceman was already on its way out, um, giving way to electric refrigerators. But, you know, that humor often lags that way. There's a lot of joke theft, and especially in things like that. Novelty gifts, crying towels, um, comic postcards. Now, the, uh, the cover of your book is a safe falling from the sky about to crush a Mr. Monopoly-type character. Could be an animal, right. could be a safe. You also write about pianos. I have a theory about this. I think you do, too. The world was a much more scary place back then, you know, and we use humor to actually address our anxieties. So now in the New Yorker, there'll be all these jokes about apps and not understanding technology. This was the equivalent at the time. People really would get crushed. I'm not saying by anvils or safes, but, you know, walking down the street was a bit more fraught 100 years ago. Yeah, there would also be cartoons about people dodging from streetcars. And, yeah, I do feel like it was more dangerous, like people were always dying in early amusement parks and. And, you know, there weren't the same food and drug laws that kept benzene out of your soft drink or whatever. It was a scarier world. I think with safe, 
maybe, you know, they were so big and heavy that they couldn't go up in the elevator, so they would hoist them up the outside. And who knows if a safe ever actually did fall. You know, the cable slipped or broke and, and smashed someone, or if just some cartoonist had an idea. Well, that's another funny, terrible thing that could happen to you in the city. Other humorous kind of kind of followed suit, but you definitely get the sense from old humor that it was a scarier place. People constantly throwing bricks at each other's heads and, and things like that. It's just more kind of a Wild West. Now, a lot of the humor that we once thought was funny were based on the fact that we were a more rural country, we were a more agricultural country, like all these delivery men you think you speak of and the milkman, and as that faded away, the humor associated with it faded away, too. Yeah, we were also a less literate country mm-hmm. in early 20th century, which is sort of when my book begins. There was a huge immigrant population who, who would have had trouble reading Mark Twain or something like that. So there was a premium on physical comedy and sight gags. The movies were considered really coarse and lowbrow when they first came out. And it's partly because they had a wide appeal. People who weren't that educated or literate or maybe didn't even know English, but could still appreciate someone slipping on a banana peel and falling on their rump or being, you know, butted by a goat. Was there stuff in this book that you didn't realize existed and still until you started researching the book and uh, said, wow, this was huge then and it's, you know, lost even to a comedy expert today? There were a lot of things where I wouldn't have guessed they, they were so funny. So like the most, I found like the most common subject for comic postcards were, were big-bottomed women viewed from behind. And it, it's hard to say why that is. You know, people back then, you know, they went to the beach on holiday. They went there on vacation, and they obviously they wanted to look at people in bathing suits. But certain things, like there was so much humor about corned beef hash. Like, that was, like, the funniest food. I wouldn't have guessed that. I and mean, I thought of it as sort of an old food that people used to have. Yeah. So much humor about boarding houses. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it. The boarding house is sort of be like a... MTV's real-world situation where all these strangers forced to share meals together and annoy each other and get on each other's nerves. Yes, and I will add Wiebelfetzers, a word I'd never heard of, but after reading your entry, I was, I was glad I did. In fact, that goes for the whole book. American Cornball, a Lafopedic Guide to the Formerly Funny. Christopher Miller wrote the book. Thank you, Christopher. Thanks a lot. And now the spiel, because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. So there is a pandemic in America. It is dangerous, potentially fatal, and heartbreaking because it's entirely preventable. The pandemic centers around Ebola, but it is not Ebola. The pandemic is ignorance. And not the kind of ignorance we can excuse as understandable or consigned to the sadly benighted or ascribed to human frailties. Some of the Ebola ignorant are well-intentioned. I, too, believe we should ask all the questions, including if a travel ban would work. But since the very best answer to that question is no, it won't work, in fact, it will hurt, then you have to conclude that those who continue to insist otherwise are wielding their ignorance as a tool. Now, I'm against a travel ban for a lot of reasons, but really for one big reason, and it's because almost every single expert in the field opposes it. I asked Nina Pfefferman, infectious disease expert, mathematician, who researches contagion, if a travel ban was a good idea. Here's what she said. It's a terrible idea. Shutting down all flights from Ebola-affected regions has a huge number of consequences that aren't uniquely health-related, but it also doesn't stop 
air travel in general. So it really doesn't change the risk. It, it slows down the risks, but it doesn't change the risks unless what you're going to do is say all flights everywhere should stop uh, and all boat travel out of the region should stop. First of all, that's a little ridiculous. Second of all, when you stop air travel, you're actually also stopping the flights in. So even if you're going to ignore all of the altruistic arguments about, wow, that's not a humanitarian thing to do because we should be saving people, even if you just want to cover your own ass, essentially, and say, I just don't want this disease to get anywhere near me, the best way to do that is actually to develop the infrastructure to be able to control an outbreak anytime it happens. And that's something we have to be ready to deal with no matter what, because the world is going to remain interconnected. So to show up and just say, oh, that's okay, sever all ties right now, that's sort of like cutting off your leg because you have an ingrown toenail. Congressman Fred Upton of Michigan asked the question about a travel ban to Thomas Frieden of the CDC, the director. His response, Frieden's response, took over a minute, but please listen to it because it does lay out the case. Right now we know who's coming in. If we try to eliminate travel, the possibility that some will travel overland, will come from other places, and we don't know that they're coming in will mean that we won't be able to do multiple things. We won't be, be able to check them for fever when they leave. Do we not have, if I can interrupt you just for a second, do we not have a record of where they've been before, i.e. a passport or, or travel status as they travel from one country to another? Borders can be porous, especially, may I finish? Go ahead. Especially in this part of the world. We won't be able to check them for fever when they leave. We won't be able to check them for fever when they arrive. We won't be able, as we do currently, to take a detailed history to see if they were exposed when they arrive. When they arrive, we wouldn't be able to impose quarantine as we now can if they have high-risk contact. We wouldn't be able to obtain detailed locating information, which we do now, including uh, not only name and date of birth, but email addresses, cell phone numbers, address, addresses of friends, so that we could identify and locate them. We wouldn't be able to provide all of that information as we do now to state and local health departments so that they can monitor them under supervision. We wouldn't be able to impose a controlled release, conditional release on them or active monitoring if they're exposed or uh, to, in other ways... My, my time is expiring, and I've got to switch. And then the congressman interrupts and reiterates, well, it seems like we could track them, totally ignoring Frieden's arguments, which come down to this. If you take away the opportunity for people to travel legally, they will travel illegally, and then they won't be able to be monitored, they won't be able to be noted, they won't be able to be followed up with. As it is, there was just one case of an asymptomatic person who acquired Ebola overseas but developed symptoms in the United States. And this man walked into a hospital and gave all the information that should have triggered the right response, but it didn't. I do not want to question Congressman Upton's motives. As I said, it's the right question to ask. Can we ban travel? But is anyone listening to the answer? Do we think that President Obama opposes a travel ban because he hates America and wants people to die? So how come vast swaths of the Republican Party and certain pockets of the Democratic Party, especially those pockets in tight races like Kay Hagan and Michelle Nunn, are for a ban when all the doctors are in near unison? They say a ban is bad. 
When the subject is war, or the wars, all the wars we've been fighting, the refrain is, heed the advice of the generals. The Democratic president has been saying this. Before him, the Republican president said it. There is no more popular statement than, I'm going to listen to the generals. And it makes sense. Why? Generals have training. Generals have prepped for this their whole lives. Generals have seen the effects up close. Generals have been in the very theaters where the war is being fought. All of that is true with the doctors, with Ebola. But now, the advice of experts isn't as important as placating a scared public, which is scared because of conscious efforts to make them scared. And look, I'm not saying that it's only Republicans who have stoked fear or who are experiencing panic in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, a school district that's 95% black, so therefore probably not a big hotbed of Republicanism. The rumor went around that the principal of the middle school had just returned from Africa which led to this. As soon I had word on Facebook, I came and got mine. I don't know about nobody else, but I'm coming to get mine. Why are you checking them out? Man, I, I, don't really, I really don't know what's going on, man. I don't want Ebola, and I don't want my child to have Ebola. Do you think that principal really has Ebola? I don't think so, but I'd rather be safe than sorry. A run on the school, parents fearfully withdrawing their children because the principal had been to Zambia. The capital of Zambia is 3,028 miles away from Monrovia, Liberia. That is 500 miles less than Hazelhurst, Mississippi is from Alaska. You know, in a way, the Hazelhurst example helps. It's illustrative ignorance. Like in 2009 in that town hall meeting in South Carolina when a man told a member of Congress, keep your government hands off my Medicare. Illustrative ignorance. Ignorance, or when the mob surrounded a British doctor for children because they got confused about the difference between pediatrician and pedophilia, that actually happened. Actually, illustrative ignorance, and that's what we're dealing with here. Let me head off the complaint I know I'm going to hear. It's that the CDC screwed up. The government has proven that they can't be trusted. Yeah, Dallas Presbyterian Hospital, as advised by the CDC, definitely screwed up. So that's it? So no more chances? So you can't listen to anything the entire medical establishment says because some small representatives thereof messed up in fighting a disease that they had never encountered before? It depends on your orientation. If you are thinking, look, we're all in this together. Let's do what's best. Let's understand that perfection is impossible. Then you'll view the response as flawed but adequate and getting better. But if you view what's going on as an opportunity, right, an opportunity to take scalps or to cast blame or to gain an advantage, then yeah, it might seem or easily be portrayed as a confidence eroding exercise. It's at least nihilism confirmation. Today in the New York Times, David Brooks led his column by writing, there's been a lot of tut-tutting about the people who are overreacting to the Ebola virus. I want to be clear, I am not tut-tutting, nor am I tisk-tisking or clutching my pearls or wagging my finger or engaging in any precious seeming way that would invite linguistic diminishment. We're seeing an entire political party, the most jelly-kneed members of the other party, and millions of Americans either on the active or passive side of a panic, and it's a depressing horror show. I think in a few years, when we count the casualties of Ebola in the U.S., it will include a few unfortunate victims of the disease and millions who were afflicted by the so-called cure. (laughs) 
And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces the gist and dodges anvils. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has been involved in many canoe tipping episodes. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. We're at slate.com slash gist email. You go there to sign up for our daily email to tell you when the show is out or sign up for the app Yo. When we're ready to go, we'll yo. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. I was once abducted by cannibals who believed in the rule of three and gave me three choices of what to eat, drink, or consume before death. It was nice of them. So what did I say? I said, thanks for listening. <laughs>